Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. I want to thank all of our listeners in Sweden and Denmark, the Netherlands, Norway, Australia, the U.S., Great Britain, Canada, and New Zealand. It's really exciting, and I'm so happy it has made its way around the world. If you are listening from this country, the U.S., or from another one, be sure to be in touch and let us know what speaks to you about this show and how it feels relevant to you either personally or politically, socially, etc. It's always interesting to find out. Elizabeth Gilpin is an actress, activist, writer, and producer who also serves as an ambassador for Represent Justice, an organization using the power of media to demand real change in the justice system. Her first memoir, Stolen, is a gripping chronicle of psychological manipulation and abuse at a quote-unquote therapeutic boarding school for troubled teens and illustrates how one young woman fought to heal in the aftermath. Gilpin is passionate about raising awareness and encouraging the narratives of survivors through storytelling. And because I have had other people on who are talking about their experiences with these quote-unquote therapeutic boarding school for, and I will say, quote-unquote, troubled teens, I am also highly committed to encouraging these narratives for people to come forward to talk about their experiences so there can be more oversight, so laws can change, so that these kids are never put in harm's way in this way. And if they are, their stories are believed and listened to, and then change can be made. Here is Elizabeth Gilpin now. It is my pleasure to have Elizabeth Gilpin on the show today. I know that you have been busy as of late um, with a lot going on, and I want you to be able to tell the people listening a little bit about yourself, what's uh, been going on recently, and what brings you to the show, and then we'll start going back and having you tell your story. Thank you for having me. I'm the author of a memoir called Stolen, which is about my time in a therapeutic boarding school, the whole I was kidnapped from my bed in the middle of the night and dropped off in the woods and then placed in one of the abusive schools you hear about in the news. So I wrote a book on the experience. So I have been working on getting the paperback out there. And a friend of mine who you've had on here before, I believe, Caroline Cole, was like, you have to speak to them. So here I am. (laughs) Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. And there have been a number of people on talking about this subject. You know, once I started hearing about it and hearing that there were organizations being put together to address it, then I really wanted people to be alerted to the size of this issue, the lack of oversight, but also if they want to be involved, how to be involved. And it's always good to know about organizations that are hopefully also paving the way for there to be more regulation and for law enforcement to be able to be involved and to know what what to watch out for. I 
want you to be able to tell more, of course, about your story, because this is about your story. I just know that throughout the years of doing this work, I would hear stories every once in a while of people being sent places where they were taken. And that was part of the trauma, sometimes more of the trauma than the actual experience of just being stolen as the, the word that you use and how that makes them feel. Can they rest at night? Can they rest at all? Can they trust their parents? And in some situations, the parents were horrified to find out that they had participated unwittingly in something that was tremendously traumatizing to their child, having been convinced by the professionals this was what was necessary. And the healing process from that, from the treatment center, treatment in air quotes, but also the healing that needed to happen within the family system from the parent's point of view, the child's point of view, there's just been so much that I've dealt with over the years from the fallout of it and the fears that linger on and the confusion about what's right about you, what's wrong about you. And usually you leave feeling like there's more wrong about you than right. And is that accurate? There's so many after effects. And now knowing that there's a phrase for it, you know, the troubled teen industry, it's really helpful to have a way of sort of packaging this content of this subject and being able to talk about it. Because I did see evidence of, of it really disturbing people and disturbing family systems en masse and that it still exists. There's still places where people have contacted me and said, oh, I, I arranged with guys to come pick up my child you know, from out of bed. And that's, you know, this year and in LA. So, you know, there needs certainly to be more education. So I want to take it back to you and have you talk about, first of all, what you're hoping to be able to get across by talking about this. And then let's go back to tell your story. When my book came out, the initial hardest part was knowing that my story was out there because for so long I had guarded it. I had made it my own story. And, you know, for a time I, I lied to myself that didn't even happen. So then I spend this years working on this book and accepting my truth. And then suddenly I felt like my story belonged to the world, if that makes sense. Everyone had access to read my story. The reactions are not always positive when you put something out there that's hard. You know, unfortunately, my life story is not butterflies and rainbows. So with the amount of support I got, I also got a lot of hate a lot of, you know, I had bullies, I had all sorts of different reactions, which I knew was going to happen. But when it happens to you, you realize there's nothing you can really do to prepare yourself. So initially that was the hardest part. Now what I'm seeing is the hardest part for me is that as hard as I fight and other people fight to tell their stories, this industry does everything they can to discount it. The second I find a credible person to back my story, to back my book, an institution, whoever it is, you better believe that somewhere in this trouble teen pipeline, they get an army of people to put out these, you know, it'll be like five days later on a post. And then 50 people will be like, my kid went there and it saved their life, blah, blah, blah. I've realized that this industry, the second somebody credible backs what survivors are saying, which is, this industry has problems. This industry has abused children and this industry needs oversight. It needs regulations like every other industry does. But they refuse to acknowledge that. They refuse to admit that. So they would rather send a bunch of 
parents or workers, I don't know who the people are to them, to discount the stories saying, no, it saved my child's life. So every time someone comes out, they discount it and they send you know a bunch of people in to be like, you are going against a cause that saved my kid, blah, 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 blah. Earlier on, when I first started doing this, not that many people had spoken out about the industry. So what I noticed then was they would have groups like survivor groups and testimonials taken off the internet. As a matter of fact, there is an alumni at my school that started a survivor platform. And not only did they try to get him to take it off, they actually bribed him, offered him a job to remove the stuff. I think that doesn't work anymore because there's so many people saying they've been abused. There's no way to get rid of it all. There's books, there's documentaries, it's out there. But I have noticed now they're like sending all these people to try and discount with their success stories with it save my kid's life. If it did save a kid's life, I'm I'm happy for that child. I obviously hope that that everyone thrives and has a healthy life. But to say that this industry does not need to be regulated is, in my opinion, wrong. I mean, not only are these minors, these are at-risk minors. And at-risk minors need to be handled with, I hate to say it, kid gloves. And therapy should build on your strengths, not tear you down for the, the one or two flaws you have. And the problem with my school and so many of these other schools is they fixate on the few things wrong with you and rip you apart for those. So you find yourself being like, I'm a failure. I'm never going to you know, amount to anything, whatever your negative self-talk is. Instead of them building on your strengths and helping you understand where you do thrive, even when you're having a hard time. The other biggest problem with these industries, I believe, and it was a huge problem when I was there, is therapy with a child should include the whole family. It should not isolate a child from their family. I should never be in a situation as a minor where I can't call my parents if something's wrong, if somebody's mistreating me, if I feel unsafe. To get a monitored phone call once every two weeks and screened letters is not a way to make a child feel safe. First about your second point about what therapy should include. Yes, it should be something that builds on your strengths. It should be something that doesn't focus in on the couple of things that you need to work on um, because those become the focus. And then that's the lens through which you see yourself and you think other people see you. Everyone has things they need to work on. But the thing that builds confidence, as you know, is noticing what you're capable of and noticing what you're able to do and what you can feel good about, about yourself. And that therapy, if it's going to be good at all, is going to be at least at the very least balanced. It's going to show you what you need to work on, but also here are your adaptive skills and here are your abilities. And let's focus on those too. And yes, it should include the family. There's an issue I have a lot with clients where I call it the the teenager handoff, like here, fix this person. And then when they're fixed, we'll take them back. But usually that person, not always, but usually that person who's labeled the IP, the identified patient, is the one who is holding on to something happening within the family system or is reacting to something happening within the family system or is needing to be heard by the family. It's a systemic issue 90% of the time. And so 
not only does it not work to help if you just kind of go to quote unquote, fix the one person, but then what does that do to self-esteem for that person where they think they're the source of the problem? Um, when usually they're the sponge or the, the ones who have absorbed what's been happening around them. The other issue is we're dealing with minors. So at 14, 15 years old, you're, you don't know that much. You don't know about mental health. And where I'm at now, if somebody said certain things to me, I, I might know it would still hurt, but I would know better to believe them, to know that they are right. Like I, I know what my strengths are and I know who I am. When you're 15, you don't know better. So when you do get shipped off, you have feelings about that. When someone calls you a whore as a form of therapy, you believe it. And you shouldn't do that to an adult or a child, but a child's mind is like, you know, it's still forming, it's still developing. So if you are constantly pushing harm on this person and like teaching them that they can't trust adults, that they're going to be shipped off in the middle of the night, attacking them with attack therapy and having their peers attack them as well, it's going to affect a child because they do not know better. And they are learning as they go. So that becomes, they start to believe that this is normal because I believed that was normal. The other thing is I asked a doctor, a a child psychologist who has a PhD because I was diagnosed with oppositional defiance disorder. Of course you were. I mean, so many are in these situations. So I said, how do you treat that? I didn't give them backstory. I was touring somewhere, met this doctor, and I did not say I wrote a book. I went to the school. I just wanted to hear it usually roots from the family unit. It's not like a 12 year old girl is not, you know, can only have be causing so many problems. She's not typically speaking out in the world being exposed to too much. In my case, I most certainly wasn't. So typically speaking, you need to look at the whole family and think, what is this child not getting? Or what does this child need more of? How can we as a unit fix things, change things. It's not just let's ship the problem child out and everything will go away. It's so interesting. It's making me think of a a phrase, the pathology of no. Like when you say no within a certain family system and sometimes with certain therapists, they'll say, oh, your child has oppositional defiant disorder. When, for example, you're in a relationship with a narcissist and you say no, you're being abusive. There's so many, it's sort of, it's context dependent and the diagnoses go flying around. And I love what this person said, where they need to assess the system and why you might not be wanting to go along with things or why the system itself has a hard time tolerating you doing your own thing or being your own person. That's really interesting insight. And one more thing about something you said, and then I want you to be able to do more of the talking. Um, The thing that's making you angry. The thing that was the hardest at first about getting hate. Yes. No one wants that, especially if you're telling your story and it's a story where there's a lot of hurt that is built into it. You don't want to get attacked on top of it. But yes, when you realize that you are being used to facilitate the PR machine that happens when they will then send someone out to talk about how great this program is because you wrote about it and how it's not. I want people to just be very suspicious about the timing of those things and to notice that that's diagnostic, that if someone writes a book or I'm thinking from myself, whenever I do a podcast recording or I give a talk and and it's about Scientology, 
there is then another website that comes up, uh, Rachel Bernstein hate website <laughs> that suddenly pops up within the next week or two. I now have come to expect it um, because I'm not going to let that stop me. But you want to see the chronology of events and find that to be diagnostic. Like, why is it that they need for you to be silenced? Why is it that they need to try to contradict what you're saying or defame you in some way so that people don't listen to you? What are they so afraid of? And so in some ways, what they're saying is, you know, Elizabeth actually has a voice out there and she has some power out there enough where we need to work hard to try to counter it. So if people hear about how wonderful a program is that you were just talking about or writing about soon after something came out, I want people to notice the chronology and find that to be very telling. So how did this story start? I know it started, it predated you getting kidnapped, getting stolen. And let's start there. What was going on? At the time, I didn't know what was going on. As an adult, looking back, I, you know, I've come to the conclusion I was just suffering from depression, like so many other people suffer from. A teenager, mental health, you know, every other thing I read now is for mental health. I mean, I watched some heavyweight boxing fights the other night, and after the fighter won, his speech was about mental health. You know, Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles, you know, I, I heard, I'd heard it a time or two, but now it's men. This is a male boxing. He's masculine. He's a fighter. And he cried and was talking about anxiety and mental health. When I was 15, the word mental health didn't exist in my vocabulary. I was from the South. We didn't talk about anything that wasn't a white picket fence with an apple after four o'clock. You don't really see therapists. I don't know what the South is like now, but when I was growing up, I didn't know anyone seeing a therapist. If if they were, it wasn't talked about. It wasn't bragged about. Now people are proud of the fact they have therapy. Like, you know, soon I might see people putting their therapy sessions on TikTok and Instagram. Back then though, people didn't talk about that kind of stuff. So when you were struggling, which I was, it was something that you almost hid because it wasn't accepted. In society, it wasn't okay to have anxiety or to feel depressed or to just not be okay. Everyone needed to be perfect all the time. And of course, then I went sent to a school where, you know, it just made that form of thinking even worse. But yeah, so I was suffering from depression as a result. I was lashing out at my parents. I think what I needed was them to tell me what was wrong, but they didn't know what was wrong either. So it was one of these things that just, you know, one thing led to another. And before, before I knew it, I was like a volcano erupting. So I was angry. I was drinking, not, not drinking to the point where I was, you know, like drinking and dry. I didn't have a driver's license when I started, you know, I was still so young. I got shipped away at 15. So I, you know, still lived at home, still very much had a curfew. If I wanted to be out late, I had to spend the night out. I definitely wasn't going out on school nights. Of course I snuck out from time to time, but if I snuck out, I had to go somewhere by foot, basically, you know? So my biggest thing was I never thought I was as bad as a lot of the kids that I was growing up with. You know, I had never had sex. I had never seen Coke or anything like that. And yet I was being treated and shipped off as though I was this degenerate child who, if my parents did not send me away, I was going to die. Did I have some bad luck and get in a car accident? Wrong place, wrong time. Yes, I did. 
That being said, I was a lot closer to dying after I got out of that school than I ever was before I went in because I was not prepared not only to deal with life anymore, but I wasn't prepared to deal with what I had just gone through because I was still a minor when I got out. So I had been repeatedly abused day in, day out. And I, for about two years, and I was still only 17. So I still have a developing brain. So not only did I need to learn how to deal with the world, I now needed to learn how to understand how to like almost rewire my brain to get through all the trauma I had suffered. But when you leave a program like that, the last thing I was going to do was speak with a therapist or do any form of therapy. It took me years to trust a therapist. And the only reason I did is because I was required by my acting coach to speak to a therapist if I wanted to continue because there were just too many things in my life. Unfortunately, I'm someone that's had a lot of trauma in my life. And a lot of the materials you deal with, deal with those traumas. Like that's what art is. I was able to draw too much from my personal life. A lot of it rang very true, but all of the problems I had as a child just got amplified when I got out because I was never given a tool to deal with them. Not in a real way. In the real world, you can't use attack therapy to confront your friends. You can't tell them they're a whore because they flirted with a boy. You know, you can't use music, like play music on a loop to get people to feel things and like trap them in trailers for days on ends and run therapeutic exercises on them. And when you're in trouble, you don't get locked in isolation. So it just amplified all my feelings, my feelings of depression, my feelings of feeling alone and misunderstood. Now, not only did I feel misunderstood by my parents, I felt misunderstood by the whole world because I didn't really understand the way it operated anymore. Wow. Okay. Right. I mean, I think also a lot of people have talked about being in these programs and then feeling feral, like they they were acting in ways that were so primal and different. And then sometimes when they would be allowed to walk in the community or be released for a little while, they did feel like they didn't know how to be on this planet and they were sure they were being looked at. And sometimes they were being judged and looked at because now they were being um, seen as different and acting in a different way. And yeah, you learn social skills that are, aren't skillful, that really do push people away or make people view you in a different way. I know a lot of details are in your book and I want to make sure that people pick up your book, but I am curious about how old you were when you were taken. I was taken at 15. Uh, there was an attempt where my parents tried to take me. This is in the book, but of course I, you know, tried to jump out of the car on the freeway and there was cops behind us and they saw, I told them I was kidnapped. We turned around. It was a whole ordeal. When you read that, you think, wow, this girl was a nightmare. And I'm not saying I wasn't a nightmare. I was a nightmare. I still can be a nightmare. We, you know, I'm human. I'm not perfect. That being said, I did not need to go where I went. I don't care how your behavior is. You do not meet a child with abuse ever. So I went back home, messed up again. And then my parents had the escorts pick me up. And from then on, you know, there was nothing I could do. I didn't, you know, I didn't even have, they didn't let me wear my shoes in the car. You know, they were, gave me my shoes if I needed to use the bathroom. So taking my shoes became like their favorite thing. Uh, my escorts didn't give me my shoes. In the woods at night, they took my shoes. I never had my shoes. You know, it was dumb things. I didn't have a flashlight. I didn't have a compass. I didn't have money. I didn't have an ID. I had nothing. 
Wow. 15. Okay. Right. So you're taken. And yeah, when you're saying dumb things like shoes, et cetera, I mean, these are all, and, and, you know, money flashlight, all of those things are symbolic of protection and independence. If you're going to be going somewhere, you need your, your money. You need a flashlight. If it's, you need a way to see and you need a way to walk. Um, so they were really binding you and imprisoning you in so many ways, real and symbolic. And then for you to tell a little bit about your experiences there, you've already mentioned the attack therapy. That is universal and it's really quite horrible. But I know that a lot of people leave that feeling really horrified about how they were treated, but also how they were encouraged to treat other people to quote unquote, help them. And so how often did you need to go through that kind of attack therapy when you were there? So three times a week for two hours minimum. I mean, sometimes groups ran up to six hours. We went from school, which was a joke, I will add. I learned nothing in that school. I don't remember reading a book. You know, I didn't have internet. So I'll just say that school is a joke, but I went from my quote unquote school to therapy three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And and any one of those groups, you could be attacked or you might have to attack someone because bear in mind, if, if a staff member or another student, unfortunately, noticed that you never talked in group or you never had something to say to someone else, you got called out for that too. So you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. If you don't talk, they're going to call you out for that. If you do talk, they're going to say you're a teacher, whatever they're going to say. So you end up getting attacked in group multiple times a week. And if you were like me, I just happened to be one of the kids that people like to pick on because I never bought into the school ever. I always knew it was wrong. And as a result, myself and my friends that I was the closest to were usually the ones who were picked on the most, put in, put on programs, which is being sent to isolation multiple times, two, three, four times for two months six weeks. You know, I had a friend who was on a six month program, which meant she sat in isolation for six months. I sat in isolation for two months, but I sat in isolation three different times. But then that's also not including the fact that we had five workshops. So about every two to three months, we had to go to a trailer on the edge of the woods and we did around the clock therapy. And most of it was attack therapy, just reaming us. We were sleep deprived. We'd be in that, they covered the window. You couldn't tell the time of day. We'd be in that room till sometimes four o'clock in the morning, you know, and we would have gone in at seven o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock in the morning. We'd be there all night, just getting attacked, getting berated. They didn't give us a lot of water because they didn't want us to need to use the bathroom. They didn't want people to throw up, which they would regularly because the exercises were so physical. They didn't give us a lot of food for the same reason. So you're sleep deprived, you're dehydrated, you're delirious. And the, the last workshop was five days. So one was five, one was four, one was three, and two were two. Um, and that's what my life was. Constantly being in fear that I was going to get attacked day in and day out. I lived in a constant state of fight or flight. I lived in a constant state of survival mode. My entire life was a game of chess. If I do this, what it, like what is the cause and effect going to be of everything I say and do? I I had no freedom in my life. I, I wasn't able to live in the present. I was constantly living in the past and the future, trying to marry the two together and keep myself from getting in trouble. So like I was remembering the lies I said, and because they have this person they've decided you are, and if you don't admit to being that person, good luck. So you just 
say, yes, I'm exactly who you say I am. I'm a whore. I'm a drug addict. That's who I am. And then you need to make the right moves going forward to not get abused again. Um, So yeah, my whole life, instead of being young and free and having fun was, okay, what do I do next? What do I say? What move do I make? That's what it was. That's ultimately, I realized the only way I was going to get out. The irony there is palpable that here they're trying to push you to be your authentic self and to be true and to admit who you are. But the more you say who you really are, the more punished you get because it's not the person who they decided that you are. And so the more you pretend to be the person who they say that you are, then the more rewarded you get. I mean, already it's head splitting and, and you know, there's this depersonalization and confusion and gaslighting. It is so backward. And what's also true just in life, when you have people who uh, make assumptions about you upon first blush, whatever that means, then if you act differently the next time, they'll say, oh, that's so out of character. I'm like, no, it's not, that's me. Like, you're still learning me. And so, but they've already decided you're this because of it, either that they just get stuck on first impressions or it works best for them. And to underscore the necessity of you being there and for your parents to still be paying for you to be there if you are that thing or if you have that problem. I wonder a little bit more about your experiences there. I mean, were there times that you did start to wonder? Sounds like you have a strong core where you were able to hold on to this sense that this was wrong. I shouldn't be here. This is not helping. This is hurting. I need to figure out finally a way to get out. But did you ever start absorbing the messages that you were given about yourself, wondering if they were true? Absolutely. I mean, there, I talk, there's a whole chapter in my book about the fact that I contemplated, like, should I just kill myself? Because anything is easier than this place. Um, Death might be easier than having to live every day being told that I'm this disgusting, terrible child who not even your parents wanted you. So yeah, I mean, I, when I was working on Stolen, I, I read all my old letters and things that I wrote and things that were written to me. I read my best friend's letters and it was hard to see some of the things that we were writing our journal entries. So I never understood. And I think that this is probably their biggest regret. We had a workshop journal where after every exercise, all those abusive exercises, we wrote an exercise. Like we wrote a journal about the exercise. So it might've been like 100 things I fucking despise about myself or ways I'm disgusting, whatever. So years later, I looked back and I read this journal about ways, what is my nightmare? What is my lie? Why is my lie? I'm a worthless abuser. And reading what I wrote about myself, I'm a worthless abuser because X, Y, and Z was heartbreaking. Uh, To this day, I don't understand why they took it because that journal is honestly what allowed me to really be able to go into the workshop chapters in the book because it's so traumatic that you really want to block it all out. But when I have a journal of every exercise we ever did and what I was feeling and what I was thinking, like really detailed right now, you know, it comes right back. And yeah, it's hard to read because I believed all of it. You know, when you have 22 people who are supposed to be your friends and the adults who are supposed to protect you saying the same things every day and they're never positive, even if they are positive, the one positive thing does not outweigh the 10 horrible things. You know, people would be called child molesters. People would be called, I mean, 
the craziest, darkest, like terrorists, just dark things that don't even come into my mind when I think about someone I don't like today. They teach you that hate is somehow a positive form of therapy. Let's go around a circle and say your harshest judgment about everyone and then rip a piece off this heart that you colored on, you know, things that represent you as a child. Why is that productive? Why do you need to know my harshest judgment of you? Which let's be honest, judgments are typically speaking like projections of our own feelings. So if you know that someone's feeling bad about themselves, don't you want to work on building them up so they don't believe that? Why do we need to not only take my pain, but now I need to put my pain on you. So you feel all the things that I feel about myself too. Why are we perpetuating it? Right. It's a big question and there are a lot of different answers. One of the things though that happens within these settings and also kind of within cultic groups in general that have a, a psychological basis to them, large group awareness trainings, et cetera. There is this mythology that when something is intense, it is the most helpful. And that when people are pushed to the brink, that's when breakthroughs can happen. And that's when they change. And that's when they open up to an idea. But that's actually not the case. (laughs) Uh, Because when that is where everyone is getting stirred up to do it, sometimes the content itself, what you're being told, what you're saying to someone else doesn't matter really. It matters to you because you're hearing it or you're having to say it. But in terms of of the leadership, that doesn't matter as much as the fact that they were able to get people to scream at each other and be exhausted and cry. And there is this equation with that kind of intensity with we're doing something big here. It's the same as like just going and like stomping on someone's foot really hard and then having them scream and say, good, I'm glad I was able to bring that out in you. What? What? Why? Well, that, what, none of that was necessary, but I think they want to feel validated, like they're playing some sort of role here and they can then see it in real time. Cause there's nothing, there's nothing subtle and internal really about these transformations. They're out there. So I think for the untrained eye and most people who run these places are untrained, they think they're doing something big. And I'm wondering about the people who are running the place that you went. And first, if you can tell people about the place itself and what you have found out about it and who was running it. So the school that I went to, which is closed down, it was opened by two men who had both been to an abusive program as a kid. I think in their minds, they thought they were doing a good thing and opening a place that operated in a healthier way than what they had been through. The problem was this. They hired somebody who worked at the school when they were at the school to be the headmaster. So the the man running our school who worked with children at so many different schools, and it breaks my heart when you look at his name online, it is disgusting. The stories you will read, but the man running our school was the same man who was working with them, abusing them. So what they've done is again, perpetuated the cycle of abuse because they went to an abusive school when they were my age. And now, you know, Rowan, fast forward, open, they've opened up a school that's abusing kids. Again, one of the men, the, the two gentlemen who opened the school was more of the, the guy you saw. One of them you never saw, one you saw. He came to the school drunk had to be escorted off campus. He 
um, had an affair with an advisor and like fled the school at one point. This is not a man that was functioning in society. You know, he was sending us away for smoking pot and telling us we're the devil. He now works in the weed industry. It's crazy, but everything he was saying, he was doing while I was at that school. So the Securitas, the, the people who watched us at night, they were local. So they, you know, had a lot of compassion for us, just like the woman who ran the kitchen did and the teachers did. Um, she worked in an ambulance in her second job. And she got a call one night that there was an aggressive DUI. Basically somebody had gotten pulled over. They were getting a DUI and been restrained, had been restrained by the police. And it was my head. It was my, the founder of my school. This is while he's running a school. She was not only our night watch, but she drove the ambulance. So she, she had the call to my headmasters, DUI being restrained by the police. This is while he's running my school. To make it even worse, my ed consultant who decided I should go there was his mother. So a large majority of the population of that school were sent there by his mother, the same woman who sent him to a school, the same woman who's keeping her son's school alive and who knows what kickback she was getting. So that's who was running my school. I had a teacher reach out to me after the book came out, who at the time, when I was at the school, I did not know this, but apparently she also had gone to school with my two founders when she was a teenager. And now she was working at this school. And she wrote me a message and said, first of all, that she was a survivor herself, which I did not know. And secondly, that she knows that the way what they did to us was abusive and she would come out publicly about the abuse, like validating what I was saying. So I, I guess in short, the school was being run by a lot of people who either were sick and demented like my headmaster or had experienced the abuse themselves and just hadn't been strong enough to break the cycle. You know, there's my teacher who I think has come to understand what she did, that advisor. And, you know, so she is trying to break the cycle. And then there's my headmaster, um, the, the founder, who's just off, you know, getting arrested and who knows what else. And he's still clearly in a lot of pain. And do I agree with what he did to me and all of my friends? No, but do I have compassion for someone who's clearly struggling? Absolutely. Because I know where I was for years after my school. It's such a complicated picture, as you're saying. Um, and it's really lovely that you have compassion, that you see that within these systems that the oppressed become the oppressors. And I think that that is all part of this cycle of abuse, multi-generational uh, cycle of abuse. And it's really powerful to hear that your book made that impression on this woman and I'm sure others as well, who were able to then reach out to you and also have some clarity, which, you know, makes it so worth it to put something out there like that. What is also really interesting to find out, I think, is how much the people who were there standing for something, sort of being anti, I don't know, let's say anti-weed, and now working in the weed industry. I don't have any feeling about people working in the weed industry. I have a feeling about people pretending to be something they're not. I'm not anti-weed. What I am anti is you sending a bunch of kids away to be abused for two years because they were smoking pot and then and saying it's a gateway drug and you're going to die because if you smoke pot, they called it a gateway drug, then you're going to do heroin. I have a problem with you preaching that and ruining children's lives while you preach it and then getting into it. Right. Uh, okay. So 
you are really beaten down. You're putting, being put in isolation. I mean, that's, it's one of the cruelest things to do to a human being because we are social creatures, but also as a teenager, where so much of your life is about connection and knowing that you have a community around you, being able to relate to each other, lean on each other, connect. And that if you can't do that, I mean, it's it's a, an extra painful thing, I think, during your teenage years. How were you finally able to get out? I mean, I know you said you learned how to play the game, which is all about survival. And it should never be that kids are put in a situation where they have to figure out their next chess move in order to survive, uh, especially if it's a quote unquote therapeutic place. Um, how did you get out? To get out of isolation, you had to cry in group. It was very easy. If you could master the art of crying in group, talking about feelings, that was the best way. And if you did it with your advisor in the group, so she could see you really doing the work, then that was like a big check for progress. The more tears, the more yelling, they had a thing called running anger. And I talk about it very vividly in the book because running anger was where you got really loud and were sobbing. By the end of it, there's like snot and tears and like you're red and you're, I mean, you're probably one step away from a heart attack just from what your body's going through. But it was almost easier to run anger than to just cry and talk. Cause when you run anger, you got to be so loud that you didn't even need to say anything. I could be yelling like, fuck the school, fuck the system. Like my anger could be directed at that. And they don't know what I'm screaming at. It's just this guttural, like monster screaming. So it was almost preferred to run anger because you could be yelling about anything. I could literally be like, fuck you. And they think I'm talking about myself and I'm talking about them. <laughs> it was really very easy, honestly, but you had to want to do it. So there would be like a good month where I'd just be too angry, where I didn't care. You know, I, I read letters where I was, I don't care. I'm too dark, especially after Animus or their workshop where I knew how to get out of isolation. I just didn't want to do it because it takes a lot out of you to like sit there, even if you're at, it takes a lot out of you. So sometimes it would take a good month of me sitting there, not being allowed to talk to anyone, to be a ghost to the whole student body before I'd be like, okay, I know what I need to do. I need to go cry in a group and I need to run anger and I need to cry to my advisor and tell my parents that you know, whatever. And that was how you got out. I could imagine also not wanting to play along every once in a while, because you're probably thinking this is so screwed up that I have to now get geared up to act basically. And I don't want to have to, I don't want to have to play their games. I don't want to have to do what I need to do. That is a false me just because I know that that's how I'm going to get out of X, Y, and Z. I don't want to be a part of this system, but then you realize that's the only way to make it through the system. And yeah, I'm sure you had to get motivated to want to even play along. It is so messed up and so absolutely confusing and contrary I'm sure to all the reasons that it should exist or that parents send their kids there. How did you finally get out of the entire program? I realized that, you know, there was no right move and rock bottom was just going to go deeper and deeper. So if I continued not wanting to play the game, they were just going to do something worse. They were going to extend my stay there to the next graduation, which was six months away. They'd send me back to the woods and then bring me back to Carl Brook. So that would have been what, another nine months potentially, or they'd just send me to a lockdown, which they threatened a lot, which is 
you know, have you ever had to brush your teeth with supervision? Have you ever worn a straight jacket? They keep you to your 21 there, not 18. Because at these schools, you can leave at 18 if you happen to turn 18. I realized that rock bottom just could keep going forever. And the last thing that I wanted was to be my worst nightmare, the worst thing you could have done to me, worse than screaming at me. There was nothing you could have said to me that would have been worse than keeping me there a day longer than I had to be there. So I was willing to be called a disgusting terrorist whore every day for the next however many months it took to make it to my graduation date. If it just meant leaving on the day I was supposed to leave. So when you arrive, they give you a graduation date, which is not school-based. It's not based on academics, which it should be because I'm supposed to be in school. It's based on a therapeutic program. But if you're not following the program, they just keep you there longer. So how did I do it? I just said, you know what? I'm going to take it. I'm going to do what they need me to do. I'm going to keep my head down. It took me a long time to get to a place where I was like, I'm just going to play the game. And I mean, I played the game all along of just say, you know, be who you want. They, they want you to be. But in terms of really committing to, to all of it, it took me until probably after really my post animus program where that's where I was like, I want to commit suicide. Like this is not worth it. But then I realized the consequences of not were, I don't know, like that would have been torture to me staying there one day longer. Right. Another, um, I mean, red flag for lack of a better term, is when you're faced with uh, this dilemma where both choices are bad. And that those are the only two that you have to pretend to be something and really get into it and the intensity that comes with it, how you know you're going to be treated, what you know you're going to be told about yourself, what you're supposed to quote unquote admit about yourself, all of it, or have to stay for longer, which was also going to be slowly tearing you down. People should never be put in that situation where there are no good choices and there are no healthy choices emotionally. Well, either way, you're going to be damaged. That's the problem. With either choice, you're going to be damaged. In my mind, the lesser of the two evils was if I, like, if I'm here, I'm getting abused. But if I have to stay here six months longer, I'm going to be abused for six months longer. And I don't know if I could have handled that place truthfully for another six months. I have friends who were held back and they, they got through it. They survived. And, you know, I, I'd like to believe I would have, but I cannot imagine to stay at that school for two and a half years. Oh, no, 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 no. Okay. So finally you play the game and dive into the muck of it. And then you get out. I'm curious about that moment of getting out. And then the after effects, when you finally got out, when it was the date to leave, what happened? What was that like? I felt like I could breathe. I felt like I've been holding my breath since the day the captors came and just holding on for dear life, honestly. And I felt this relief that I could breathe and that if I could just get the car off the campus, that I would never have to look back again. The reality was, is it wasn't that easy because yes, I was free from Carlbrook, but I wasn't really free because it controlled my life and my feelings and my well-being for years. I would do well for like a month and then just be a train wreck or I'd be doing good for a year or so and then something would trigger me or I had no tools to deal with life and I had no tools to deal with trauma and pain 
and real life things like having a miscarriage or something like that. I had a miscarriage and my gut reaction was to like have meltdowns and because that's what Carl Brook taught me. That's not how the real world works. So yeah, I mean, I, I let, let out a big breath, but what I did not understand was the challenges that were going to be ahead of me. And I think also the challenges of reconnecting with the people who sent you there. Yeah, that was hard. We were at odds for a long time. And the biggest problem was I was too ashamed and embarrassed to talk about what had happened. So it, I wouldn't tell them. I mean, they knew I hated it. And like the, you know, the comment, like, I can't believe you sent me that, you know, but I wasn't mature enough, like emotionally to sit down and be like, this is what happened. And by the way, it's very hard to sit down with someone, you know, it's easier with a stranger than someone, you know, to sit down and be like, this happened to me. This happened to me for two years. This is what was said to me. The people who are really close to me that read the book, it was really interesting. I found myself getting very insecure about after they read the book, like how they were going to see me. My parents did get most of the specific details from reading the book because there was just not a world. And most survivors write me and tell me this, like one of the biggest gifts this book did for them was now they don't have to try and explain it or to their girlfriends and to their family. They've just been able to just let them read the book. And it really answers a lot of questions. So it's like this, okay, like now you know, and I know that you know, but I didn't have to have this like week long, really painful conversation. No. Oh God, no. What you learn by being a therapist too, is you learn how many people are having a a public persona. They're hiding so much of what's true about them and their fears and their traumas to varying degrees. And I see it every day. If I see people um, coming into my building or even walking down the hallway of the suite where they might run into other people or other therapists, smiling, looking fine, sitting down in my office and bursting into tears. So that was right there, right behind the smile and the, yeah, sure, I'm good. And the answer of fine, how you doing? Fine, I'm doing fine. So I think a lot of people have a lot of things. And that's why, you know, people say, just be nice to everyone if you can, because everyone has something going on that you may or may not know about. But I think what happens too is that if you then seem to, if you want to tell your story, if you seem like you've got it together, And people then start to defame you because of it, or they start to make it seem like you're exaggerating or you're trying to get attention or whatever else. What I'm hoping people listening will learn from this is that that's um, adding insult to injury by keeping the focus on the victim constantly. The whole point of you telling the story is for the focus to be on the organizations, on the people who did this to you, not why are you telling your story? Well, let's judge her some more if we can about how she might be putting herself together. And if she is making, you know, this up and if it has credibility, no, the whole point, right. Is to look elsewhere. That was my fear for the general public. My fear for the people closest to me was I'm a very strong person, or at least I, I think I am, you know, at my core, I'm, you know, I believe in myself and I think I got insecure that the people who see me as this strong woman, right? They would see the more vulnerable side of me and understand that I've been through a lot, you know, 
I don't want to say more than most people because I don't know everyone's story, but I, I know I went, I went through a lot at a very early age and some people have way more heartbreaking stories and some people had a lot better situations. We're all different, but the people who I've worked so hard to, you know, be this strong person to prove to myself that I'm more than that school told me I was, there's this moment where you're like, what are they going to think? Are they going to be like, wow, this girl's like, fuck, I don't know. I know it's not true, but it's a lot to process. And it's a lot for other people to process when they're reading it. It is a lot to process, and I'm, but I'm glad you brought this up. And sometimes when I guide people to tell their stories, I can't tell them how to tell their story. I can encourage them to weave into their story their worries about telling their story, that they are worried that people listening to it might see them as weak or might see them as troubled or might see them as people who are damaged now and who are not capable of handling life's stresses. And if you say... I'm concerned about telling you this because I actually have this strong place inside of me, which I was able to see in real time because that actually helped me survive something that some people didn't. And it also helped me learn what I needed to do in order to survive, to get out of there sooner than later. And that existed even in that space. And so I know that to be true. And what's also true is I've been through a lot of crap. And probably more than you guys who are listening to me have been through with these particular situations. And it's a both and not either or. You can be strong at your core and you can also be dealing with the after effects of being tremendously mistreated. And so I think that if you even present it that way, this was my concern. I still want you to see me this way because I see me this way. And also what happened to me was also really wrong and is going to be something that I'm going to be needing to work on for a long time, but I feel able because I'm strong. Like, you know, it all becomes, I think, part of the presentation that I think is important. So what what were your parents' reactions when they read the book? I mean, I, I think it goes without saying that any parent, especially Carl wrote kids, because if you're a parent who sent your kids to a different school, you could be like, well, that story's heartbreaking, but my kid didn't go there. If you sent your kid to my school and you read my book, I mean, you're going to be heartbroken because most parents did not know the ins and outs. I don't know if any child sat down with their parents and was like, this is what, you know, because to be honest with you, a lot of the kids that think it helped them, in my mind, that's a defense mechanism to not believe that you were abused, to not to not have to accept your parents, unfortunately, were who sent you there. It's, you know, that's a whole nother kind of words for a different conversation, but I think not just my own parents, but all the parents that read this, I think it's heartbreaking because nobody sent their child away wanting them to be abused. You know, no parent strives to be like, let me go through all this trouble to spend all this money, pay these people, whatever, to have my child come out worse than when they went in and be abused every day. But at the end of the day, and this is what I, I, I always say to people is I realized as I was unraveling the story of stolen, that everybody was lied to, that this is a a, a system that lies to people and manipulates. It sends, like if you come out with the truth, they're going to send 20 quote unquote moms to say it's save my kid and discount you. It's going to pay to have things taken off the internet. But the reality, the truth is there are kids being abused today. And the only way this industry will change because it needs to change. There needs to be, this kind of goes into your next question. What needs to change? 
There needs to be regulations on these schools. There needs to be oversight. And I know I said that earlier in the interview, but there are regulations and oversights everywhere on regular schools, on, on regular boarding schools, on prisons, on healthcare, on everything. Why should at-risk teens be in institutions that don't have anyone watching what they're doing? A child should never be in a system that doesn't give them access to a proper education, that doesn't allow them to go outside, that doesn't give them their basic human rights. And in these schools, if you are behaving, maybe you get your basic human rights, basic being the keyword. But if you're not, you are stripped of all of them. The only way that these things are going to happen, that regulations will be put in, and that's what people are fighting for. That's what Caroline's fighting for. That's what Paris Hilton is fighting for. That's what Jessica Jackson is fighting for. We are not discounting the people that these places have helped. But what we are saying is there is a serious problem when there are institutions open and no one's regulating them. And there are kids dying in them every single day. And I hate to say every single day, but it is every single day. There are kids dying and being abused because no one is watching. There's never going to be a time where we're able to close all these schools down. But what we can do is tell our truths and tell our stories, no matter who negates it, which trust me, they're every step of the way. I have someone being like, you suck, you're a liar, you know, whatever it is. But I'm not going to stop telling my story until there is oversight on these places because there's oversight everywhere else. Right. And so I think what is important is you've committed yourself to doing education and prevention, knowing that it's going to get you pushback. It already has. It will continue. For a lot of people, when they run places like this, this is their income and it's a huge income. And a lot of times it's kept in families and it's, you know, other schools are, are opened up with other names and other locations, but they're just an arm of or a continuation of other schools. So you always want to do your background checking with the names of the people who are running it and what they were connected to before. And I know some of them are felons and that, you know, it doesn't matter. And things like that should always matter. And you're right. Everything should be regulated. There should be some oversight. There should be surprise visits. There should be communication that is unmonitored. Uh, there should be able to be the, the safeguards where you also can have your constitutional rights protected, like freedom of speech. There's a reason that we have that as part of the Constitution. What's also true is that people don't necessarily believe teenagers. And so that's something that also means, I think, that there needs to be more regulation so that the, either the schools that shouldn't exist don't exist or they're able to be transformed if they're worthy of being transformed. Because when teens come out of this, very often they're discounted. And so it, they then can shout from the mountaintops, but then they're called oppositional or difficult. Like it's just this spiral that continues. So that's why, yeah, I think the powers that be need to come in and do much more protecting. And But I know also some of them, just to be very honest, some of the powers that be are paid off by some of these places. And they get a lot of spokespeople and famous spokespeople to say nice things about them. And so I'm really glad that organizations are coming together to fight this. So just as we're finishing up, can you let us know about the organizations that are doing that help with this kind of education and prevention, but also oversight? You know, I've spoken a little bit about the fact that and most people have seen in the news that Paris Hilton and Jessica Jackson and Caroline have been working on this bill. So I 
do hope to see the oversight come into play. But a big thing for me is I love to find places to recommend to families who have struggling teens, places like the Child Mind Institute in New York, who believe that therapy includes the whole family, that therapy builds off strengths, that you have to look at an entire family when a child is misbehaving and not just the child. Because people oftentimes come to me and are like, I don't want to send my kid there, but I don't know where to send them because these rehab centers, these programs don't give you any other options. They say, you just bring your kid home, they're going to die or go to the troubled teen industry. Something that you said that we can finish up with that you actually started with that I thought was so moving. You said that mental health treatment was not something that was part of the culture of the place that you were raised in. There is still a stigma and there are too few resources in a lot of places. Families might be under this assumption, and it could be true in certain areas, that this is the only choice. And it's a terrible one, but they might feel like this is it. But you said when you were acting out, however that was defined, and that's different for everyone, but really you said, I just wanted them to ask me what was wrong. That went right through me, how easy it could have been to prevent all of what happened. That if someone had said, I see you're doing this, I see you're not wanting to listen to us, you're wanting to do your own thing, you are seeming sad or you're angry, what's going on? You can tell us, or let's find someone you can talk to about this and we can all talk together. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much for everything and for your book and for all that you're going to be doing in the future. So thank you again. Thank you so much. It was so nice talking to you. Yeah. Really good talking to you too. One more thing before you go. Thank you, Elizabeth. I know it's not the easiest thing to have to go back into a very difficult time in your history in order to talk about it and share it with the public. So I appreciate you very much. And I appreciate the fact that people in general want to be able to tell their story. And it is a difficult thing to get back into those emotions. I think it is so interesting to hear Elizabeth talk about how brutal it was, not only the treatment, but the way you were talked to. So much harshness and being so critical and being called molesters and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, where would that happen? And why would that be seen as therapeutic in any way? And that's why when people talk about going to these teen treatment places, they often use air quotes when they say the word treatment or that they say it was therapy because it was far from it. It was really abusive. When Elizabeth said at the beginning and then I came back to it at the end about how she had a lot going on and she was feeling depressed, but that mental health was not something on the minds of the people around her. And it wasn't something really socially acceptable to talk about or to take seriously. And I think for a lot of people in a lot of countries still, in a lot of families still, there isn't room made to have any kind of emotional self, any kind of mental health issues. And everyone has them to varying degrees. 
whether it is a disorder or if it is even just what they call an adjustment disorder, that you're adjusting to something in your life. We all go through things and it needs to be taken seriously. But really, what people need is actually very little. They just need to be asked if they're okay and what they need. They need to be seen. They need to be acknowledged. They need to be asked if everything is okay. I think that there are a lot of people I have talked to who are people who were raised in cults where there really wasn't space for emotions. There wasn't a place to talk about feelings and anger and depression and those kinds of feelings were seen as weaknesses. But they are within the range of normal human reaction. And they're important. They inform us about how we're doing and how we're being affected by the world around us and by things happening in our lives and by the thoughts we have in our own minds. Some people are also more wired to have certain emotions and they might not know why they're having them. But being able to address them, know what they are, and then maybe being able to see that there's a hereditary connection and that's why they're suddenly depressed even though life is good, it helps you know yourself. And it's so important. It's so empowering. It's so clarifying. I know that I've talked to a number of people who say that they get so irritated by the people around them who just keep after them and keep wanting to tell them and complain to them and tell their stories. And they kind of mimic someone talking by using your hands, as you've seen, kind of in a hand puppet way, like talking, 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 making fun of a person who just is following them down the hallway to get a point across and to talk to them about something or complain about something. And they feel so irritated. And in some situations, yeah, there are people who will follow people around to complain to them. But in some situations, I've said to people, I wonder what would happen if you stopped and turned around and said, what is on your mind? How can I help? Let me hear you. I care about how you're feeling. Is there something I can do? And if you even feel that you've already heard someone go on and on about something, there's something else they're needing, and that's why they keep bringing it up. And it could be because when you respond, you are flippant and dismissive. When you respond, you just give them advice and move on thinking that's going to solve things. But they just wanted to be heard, and they wanted to get support. They didn't want to be given advice and have someone feel like, oh, now they've resolved the issue and they can move on from that conversation. Find out if maybe you need to be turning and looking and addressing what somebody needs. And that will help them stop having to bring it up over and over. And if someone keeps bringing it up over and over and you feel like you're addressing it, it's an important thing, I think, to ask, what is it that's missing here? And you can say to the person, what is it that I'm missing here? I have responded, but maybe I haven't responded in the right way. Maybe you haven't felt like I've taken you seriously. Maybe you haven't felt heard. Maybe I was sort of chuckling, <laughs> laughing, responding to you, thinking, ah, this is ridiculous and over the top. Well, what does that do that usually makes someone either back away or 
need to keep trying to convince you that something really is wrong that you need to be listening to or that they really want you to be listening to. So it's a really wonderful thing and a very easy thing to just look at someone and say, what can I do for you? What do you need? And if it's just to have me listen and care, happy to do it. Do you want me to be listening to give you advice? Do you want me to be listening to give you comfort? Do you want me to be listening because you want me to believe what you're saying when other people have dismissed you? What is it? And I think in the moments, too, that people talk about, like Elizabeth did, being sent into places where not only are you not asked what's wrong, but you're told what's wrong with you. And somehow you need to adopt that idea about yourself and then get treatment for that. It sends you so much farther away from knowing yourself, from also having other people really know you. And it's so disorienting. And so the fact that Elizabeth has had to fight her way back to having a sense of herself that is more true, that's more accurate, it shouldn't be that a quote-unquote therapeutic environment makes you more confused, makes you more overwhelmed, makes you more depressed, makes you more angry, makes you more fragmented. It should do the opposite. It should help you feel good and calm and secure. It should make you feel clear, held together, understood. And if that's not happening within a therapeutic environment, it's not a therapeutic environment. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow.com at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.